0: What's up, people? Jose Nino, your fantastic host of El Nino Speaks, is back again here to drop some major truth bombs. And once again, I am joined by the great George Samueli, co-host of The Gadigal. What's new with you, George?
1: Not very much. Things are pretty much um, as they were, I think, you know, from a personal point of view, since we last spoke. But of course, many things have uh, changed in the uh, world since then
0: oh yes most definitely there are some profound changes in the geopolitical landscape and also some weird stuff happening domestically in the united states now one of the themes we're going to be touching upon today specifically are some of the so-called false opposition to The U.S.'s reckless interventions and geopolitical machinations abroad. But just from a broader perspective, the Russo-Ukrainian conflict has been now going on for at least the militaristic phase of it for eight months. And from a glance, Russia still has the advantage, but there has been a slowdown in activity lately where... Do you see the conflict going in the next, say, three to six months?
1: Well, you know, obviously, it's hard to know because I'm not on the distribution list as to um, the Russian uh, commanders. So I'm assuming that at the moment, this is the rainy, muddy season. So there's not going to be very much going on for the next month or so. But I would think that uh, towards late November, early December, as the cold weather hits and the ground is frozen, that, uh, and the Russian forces will be replenished by the, um, the newly mobilized forces, the 300,000 that um, Putin mobilized uh, in September, that uh, Russia will mount a major offensive around about then, late November, early December and push out the Ukrainian forces from the Donbass. I also think that uh, Russia may mount an offensive uh, outside of Donbass, that they may then try to take Odessa and the Black Sea coast. I think that um, Russia is really now playing for keeps. They don't want to do this again in five years' time, in 10 years' time, or 15 years' time. I think they want to be sure, at least for the next 50 years, that they will be secure from another NATO-inspired war. So I think that that Russia isn't just going to settle for liberating the Donbass from uh, Ukrainian forces. I think they are going to push for the Black Sea coast because they do think that that is part of historic Russia that was taken away from them by the Bolsheviks, and that Russia has somehow put up with it in the, obviously in the Soviet era, but even in the post-Soviet era. But everything that Ukraine has done really since 2014, maybe even before, has antagonized Russia so much that they're not really willing to allow Ukraine to continue holding on to Odessa and the Black Sea coast.
0: That's what I figured as well because by making Ukraine landlocked, it's going to become a de facto basket case slash failed state that's going to be on the EU, UK, and Washington dole. And probably will like implode now, do you believe that Russia may push further into Western Ukraine, or will they stop there, or do you envision a scenario where NATO starts creating like a buffer zone there?
1: Well, I think it depends on whether Ukraine will be willing to settle. It's hard to see how Ukraine can go on fighting a war, suffering the casualties that um it's suffering. I mean, it just doesn't have the manpower to go on fighting. So it's possible that Ukraine will then try to sue for peace and stick with whatever it has. If it doesn't, if the war continues, then I would imagine Russia could push westward. I mean, they don't want to be stuck with a uh, rabidly hostile state on their Western border that is simply dreaming of revanchism And dreaming of going on fighting against Russia for the next decade, lobbying missiles, uh, committing terrorist acts, making cross-border raids, killing Russians. I mean, I think that Russia would have to essentially ensure that there is at least a neutral, non-hostile state in Ukraine. I mean, they just can't allow the Zelensky gang to stay on and NATO essentially continuing to arm it and plan further uh, military incursions uh, into russia
0: hmm. yeah it's, there's definitely a lot of stuff moving parts here and the the kind of scary part about it is that there is a pretty large western elite class that would likely try to bankroll some type of unconventional dirty war in perpetuity basically on Ukraine's part or whatever is like left on Ukraine to like indulge in these like um, revanchist, like anti-Russian fantasies.
1: Yeah, I I think so too, because the Western strategy has been to try to bleed Russia dry. I mean, it's never been about Ukraine. They've never given a damn about um, the welfare of Ukrainians. So it's all about trying to do as much damage, cause as much pain. and cause as much exhaustion on Russia as is possible. So obviously, uh, the West and NATO want this war to continue. They're ready just to go on sending arms, sending funds to Ukraine just to keep the war going. The tragedy is that Ukraine is um, led by a leadership that seems happy to go along with this scheme. They're not really thinking about the welfare of their own people. They just want to continue down this path, which certainly doesn't benefit them, but it does um, benefit um, the West. And so, you know, I think the West will try to continue with this war to the point where it really is literally fighting for Ukraine to the last Ukrainian. I mean, it's, that, that it's like, yeah, it will really eventually be to the last Ukrainian. I mean, you saw the whole n- nonsense um, with the, uh, the progressive caucus, how they um, oh, yeah. started with this sort of very limp, fatuous call for diplomacy without ever defining what they meant by <laughs> diplomacy, and then all Quincy Institute, yeah, exactly, like the, a la the Quincy Institute, yeah, we want diplomacy, we want vigorous diplomacy, robust diplomacy, you know, <laughs> spell out what they mean by it other than it has to be robust, and then so they the, they called for diplomacy, but immediately they yeah. said, oh well, well we. Um, you know, we of course fully support uh, you know, Ukraine, and we fully support the, what the administration is doing, sending everything and including the kitchen sink to Ukraine. We're all for that, but we want to supplement it with some diplomacy, but even that was obviously too much, and they withdrew that request for diplomacy. and then the all of them you know there's the Jaya Powell, congresswoman Jaya Pal she's the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. and then of course Jamie Raskin. You know who's famous for the his role in the two impeachments and in the January the sixth committee, and then he pretty much has called for a war to the death against Russia, which is the great Satan of the world, you know, the great reactionary bastion of the world, and that you know we should basically go on fighting this holy war against Russia until victory is won. So they started off writing this fatuous letter calling for diplomacy and now they've ended up calling for a war to the end um against russia so why i'm bringing that up is that that's that's the congressional progressive caucus but there isn't too much opposition to that uh and that's i think what's dangerous that in in washington you know where where is the group of um political figures who are going to resist this and who are going to be pushing for a diplomatic settlement or some conclusion to this um, effort. I mean, we obviously can name the few congressmen who do take this position, but they're just a handful. Then, then none of them is really in a, in a major leadership position and they don't have the votes. So that's why you see, ultimately it's going to go on because that's the way the military, political, media elite wanted to go on.
0: Yeah, all around it's a pro war uni party with the exception of like the fringe America First faction. And and it's likely going to stay that way for some time. I think there is like a generational divide in my view, because a lot of like the younger millennials and Sumers, once they come into age, it's probably those people who will likely change the foreign policy paradigm. Because what I see on most of the right and the left in the U.S. Of, are just like people that are stuck in geopolitical time warps that are of the 20th century. Like for some, it's always 1939. And for others, it's always the Cold War. And once people break through that kind of like mind rot, then you'll see change.
1: Well, that's it. Um, but that's that's where you really – I have to ask the question: When is that going to change? Yes, you know we we know about Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Congressman Matt Gates, and you know various other Republicans, and uh, you know, and they say you know reasonably sensible things. But even from um, the perspective of uh, the right, the conservatives, and I'm not even talking about the neocons and other, but let's say somebody like Steve Bannon now. I heard Steve Bannon's show the other day, uh, and they were talking about um, Putin's Valdai um, speech, and who did he have on? He had all these rabid Russophobes who were, again, of a younger generation. These are, these are people who were, essentially came of age after the Cold War, but they've inherited some of the uh, uh, you know, pathological Russophobia from their emigre parents so i'm thinking of somebody like boris epstein who works for trump i think he he left the soviet union when he was a small boy and i think it must have been in the late 1980s but then you have um there's somebody called um, matthew tiermond whose father is i think leopold tiermond who was a kind of a polish um again absolute hater of russia and i think he had some role in um in the founding of chronicles of culture and then he had um, Dr. Sebastian Gorka, Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who's, uh, again, he was born in England. So his parents were from Hungary. They left in 1956. But he, he himself has no living memory of communist Hungary. He never lived in communist Hungary, but he's filled with this um, uh, total hatred for Russia that he obviously imbibed from his parents. So that's Steve Bannon. That's an America firster. That's a Trumpian. And this is the stuff that he comes up with. And, you know, usual kind of, you know, Putin wants to take over the world and, you know, he's throwing down the gauntlet to the West and and so on. So it's hard to see where this, um, you know, sensible, rational perspective will come from. To be honest, I just don't see it. Maybe it'll appear. I mean, I haven't seen any of this from Rand Paul, who. Yeah withdrew his opposition to finland and sweden joining nato i mean that's all he had to do all he had to do was to vote against that <laughs> and he couldn't even bring himself to do that it is rather humorous that
0: the most like rational voices on these issues are just like these anonymous bodybuilding accounts on twitter these like reactionary anonymous like accounts that are generally from like the balkans that make the most sense on the issue. And then like some fringe creators like Nick Fuentes and whatnot, who actually like make sense on the issues. But unfortunately these people are just like totally outside the mainstream and they're canceled and not allowed to have like, yeah, I do think that like in the acceptable America first type of movement, that is still very much a movement filled with people that are, stuck on Cold War priors and really just like neoliberal,
1: neoconservative priors. That's right. And um, it's very strange because however much Putin explains, and he's explained this ad nauseum, that the Russia, the Russia that he represents really has no time for communism. It has no time for the Soviet Union. It has no time for the Bolsheviks. I mean he constantly criticizes the Bolsheviks, what the Bolsheviks did to Russia, how they essentially betrayed the Russian nation, how they' uh taken away territory from Russia and given it to all the other nationalities for the purpose of trying to win them over to communism, and however much he says that he has really, you know he has no interest in uh any revived Soviet Union, they still identify Putin and Russia with the Soviet Union. I mean, how many times are they going to say, oh, oh, Putin is KGB, Putin is KGB. Yeah, Fox News. He was in the 1980s. (laughs) He was a young man. That was was more than 35 years ago that he was uh, in the KGB. He had been a Yeltsin supporter. He had supported Yeltsin in 1991. He had been Yeltsin's protege. So all that is just ignored, but it goes to what KGB and Soviet Union is Russia. So you think at the minimum, Somebody like Bannon would see the difference between Russia and the Soviet Union, and particularly when in, in the Valdai speech, but also in many other of his utterances, Putin has identified Russia with a kind of conservatism, basically a kind of conservative traditional values, the kind that presumably somebody like Bannon would also support. I mean, somehow it's just this this mental block. you You know, you say Russia, they think the Soviet Union, communism, KGB, Lenin, Stalin. I mean, it's just total mindlessness. It's even more
0: ironic you have these type of Reaganite conservatives who share memes and quotes of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, when the funny part is that if you read Solzhenitsyn's work, in the 90s he was like very much like anti nato and not a big fan of this us like led global imperium trying to transform russia into just some gigantic shopping mall marked by like massive like degeneracy and other weird lifestyle trends and that's something that just cracks me up to this day like these people have like just like such lack of historical self-awareness
1: yes no, no no question and um if you remember when Solzhenitsyn delivered his um Harvard address sometime in the mid nineteen seventies, and he already there, you know expressed his um disenchantment with sort of western consumerism, you know western arrogance and the imposition of kind of western values on everyone, and that was the moment when um Americans dropped Solzhenitsyn. and up until then he'd been this icon you know heroic figure that everyone everyone loved him oh he's a great um, foe of uh, the soviet regime but when he expressed certain criticism and uh sort of disenchantment with the united states that was it you know you can't you can't do that but you're right of course the Reaganite, the remnants of the Reaganites, so they still, of course, idolize Solzhenitsyn without realizing you know what Solzhenitsyn actually uh, said, and he believed in uh, you know in, in Russia, but they don't, they just don't understand that the Soviet Union was not Russia. The Soviet Union was very hostile to Russia, the affirmative action empire. Yeah, I mean, what what was it? That Lenin used to Lenin used to talk about greater Russian chauvinism. I mean, there's always greater Russian chauvinism. And the Bolsheviks had that attitude that uh, you know that they kind of dis- despise Russia, and that's why they made these um, decisions that they did. Well, first of all, they persecuted the Russian Orthodox Church. They closed down the Orthodox Church and. You, you can't have Russian nationhood without the Orthodox Church. I mean, it's just part of the Russians' national identity. So they closed that down, and then of course they took lands inhabited essentially by uh, Russian nationals, Russian speakers, and gave it to others, notably Ukraine. I mean, the Donbass and Odessa and all the Black Sea, all of which had belonged to Russia. They just simply gave it to Ukraine because they were so desperate to have you know Ukraine as this. Um, Bolshevik bastion. And then, of course, the communists in 1991 did a kind of a last FU to Russia by just dissolving the Soviet Union, leaving millions of Russians uh, living outside their borders and really at the mercy of all sorts of nationalities. Um, that had been promoted by the Bolsheviks. I mean, the Bolsheviks had created all these states, the republics of the Soviet Union, and had actually promoted these nationalities, these nationalisms, particularly including um, Ukrainian nationalism. So, so, you know, Russians suffered at the Bolshe- hands of the communists both at, at in 1917 when they seized power, and then finally when the communists just dissolved you know, the Soviet Union over kind of a boozy lunch and over kind of essentially a power struggle between Yeltsin and Gorbachev. But, you know, the Russians didn't get a look in. But as far as the Western thinking is concerned, they just still think Russia and the Soviet Union are one and the same, anything but. Oh, and just to add on to the Solzhenitsyn
0: insanity that's like directed against him, I, if I'm not mistaken, he has been like de facto canceled in a lot of French institutions that bear his name because uh, lately, in amidst this whole anti-Russia iconoclasm that's been going on since um its military incursion to Ukraine, and he did have like an interesting, a really polemical take on the the massacre and the Vandi during the of the French Revolution, where he argued it was actually like a genocide. So that's definitely not going to jive well with a lot of progressive French scholars and intelligentsia. But it really is ultimately like an anti, in my opinion, it is like, when you look at this entire campaign against Russia, it is an anti-Russia project, because you have the whole assortment of people ranging from these disgruntled ethnics that think that, Putin is some like neo czar that's about to commit some pogrom to the, um, your typical Neoconservative bobblehead that thinks that th- this is like the return of the, the Soviet Union. So in some, like regardless, like this opposition, the, the common thread here, you look at it, it is like an anti-Russian civilization project. It's an animus that is very much directed against Russia and the Russian people. And, the whole goal is to reduce it into like a satrapy of the West. At the end of the day,
1: yeah, no, I, I, that's absolutely right because it is directed Russian culture. I mean, they you know they cancel Russian artists, Russian performers, Russian music, Russian literature, and um, now they can't really be that stupid to think that this, that these that they have any that any of that has anything to do with uh, Ukraine. But you know that. But what they're doing is essentially just canceling Russia and therefore Russian culture, and preying on uh, people's uh, essential ignorance and uh, and mindlessness. So when they say, "Here's this uh, Russian conductor," well, we don't want him uh, anymore. Then that. Is, uh, is an attack on Russian culture. The, the whole idea that, well, he hasn't condemned uh, Putin or whatever, I mean, it's, it's laughable, absolute nonsense. When has when anyone ever demanded of any artist that he somehow makes some kind of a political statement? I mean, the, the, you know, it's a, an absurdity. But it's a part of trying to extirpate Russia from Western culture and then and then you have to ask you know why why do they do this and i suspect is that they see russia as a part of the west obviously it's part of the west but that it has an alternative model of social uh, organization of alternative model of governance that might be appealing to the west so it's like it's a, it's not like if you look at Iran, you know, Iran, you could say, okay, that has conservative social values, conservative morality and whatever. But they don't, you know, the Western liberals don't care much about Iran because it's sort of Islamist and, you know, has a limited appeal to much of the West. Russia's a different case because Russia has been a part of the West. It's obviously its culture has been a part of the Western culture. Even this, the, the Marxist-Leninist ideology, after all, derives from the West, but Russia has the potential of being an alternative and rather attractive model to the West, because, you know, if you look or think about the the Western public, the Western public would regard Russia as part of the Western culture. Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Tchaikovsky, Mussorgsky, I mean, you go go through it, you know, the great modernist painters, I mean, you know, the great scientists, it's all part of uh, the West, and then, but instead of embracing the sort of contemporary woke liberalism, Russia is embracing a kind of um, traditional values and a kind of traditional uh, culture, traditional social relations. And, and I think that's an anathema to contemporary liberalism. I mean, the reason why someone like Jamie Raskin, who is an influential figure in Washington, why he is declaring a jihad against Russia I mean, he he says there openly, Russia is the center of uh, homophobia, anti-feminism, and transphobia. You know, it's the fascism reactionary and everything in the world today. Why is he saying that? Well, because he identifies all all the little things that he wants, he and AOC and all the rest of them. Who is the, the main enemy of all that? Russia. Why? Because Russia is part of the West, but it's also able to, Mobilize opposition to contemporary liberalism in the rest of the world, no one else can do that china can 't do that. You know China knows how to make money, but china doesn't know how to mobilize opposition to western liberalism uh, Russia does russia you know has a long experience you know of very skillful diplomacy in the Soviet era, but even before, and as we can see from the way it's managed to win support from the uh, the non Western world uh, during this whole sanctioned era, it's very good at mobilizing opposition to the West, and hence you know it, you know the, there is a real powerful uh, desire within the West in NATO land in Europe and in the United States to crush Russia to crush the voice of Russia.
0: Oh yeah, big time, and there's really no opposition meaningful opposition to this type of project. And which leads into my next point, which we will focus on throughout the rest of this discussion, which refers to an article that you sent me about a week ago that's titled Putin's Nuclear Paradigm. It was authored by Peter Van Buren at the American Conservative. And in it I noticed that it was parroting a lot of media talking points about how Russia was going to make the conflict in Ukraine nuclear. And what makes this really ironic is that the American conservative was founded originally by Pap Buchanan, who in his prime emphasis on prime was a staunch non-interventionist and skeptic of the media's narratives on a host of foreign policy interventions abroad. However, in my view the American conservative has gone downhill in the last decade or so and what would you say was like the most like particularly striking part all about that article that like unsettled you when you read it
1: well as you put it the whole issue that these supposed conservatives or anti-interventionists uh, okay. advocates for restraint the way that they have embraced the notion first of all that russia is losing this war for which they have no evidence at all other than what they've read in the new york times and in contemporary liberal opinion so russia is losing the war and that russia will then reach for nuclear weapons because that's the only way that it can avoid complete defeat so obviously as an argument it's completely absurd russia could just simply one day to the next, knock out all of Ukraine's um, power generation. That's it. So, have, in Ukraine basically will have to sit in the dark and uh, without any internet, and that'll cut you know, <laughs> Zelensky off from all his um, online dating. So, Russia can do that. They can do it tomorrow. They can do it within the next couple of hours. So, why would they need to resort to nuclear weapons? So, they make this argument about the nuclear weapons in order to largely demonize Russia, I mean, you know, and so, hey, well, what a a horrible country it must be if it can envisage using nuclear weapons. Now they claim that Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons. Putin has never threatened to use nuclear weapons. He has not once mentioned nuclear weapons. The only people who have ever mentioned nuclear weapons were the Western powers, when during the, uh, you know, I think, February the 25th or whatever, the um, French um, foreign minister, I think, I don't know, what his name, is, Le Trillon or whatever, he said, well, Putin had better remember that NATO is a nuclear power, too. So he mentions nuclear uh, weapons. And then um, Liz Truss, when she was still uh, uh, campaigning for the leader of the Conservative Party, she was asked during a debate. Whether would she be willing to press the nuclear button, even if it meant global nuclear annihilation? And she said, without any hesitation, without any caveats, without any comments like, "Well, we, we don't even want to talk about anything like this; it was too horrible." She said, "Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I'm ready, ready to uh, press the nuclear button." So Putin has never spoken like that. All he has said is that if the the territorial integrity of the our country were threatened, then all options would be on the table, which is pretty much what you would expect him to say. I mean, what you know, what what would the U.S. Uh, leader say in such circumstances? But this was immediately misinterpreted by the Western media as Putin is threatening to use nuclear weapons, and again, people such as Pat Buchanan, who should know better, have have just parroted this nonsense. Oh, Putin is threatening to nuclear we- to use nuclear weapons because Putin is losing the war. So, that, you know, that that's a, a completely ridiculous argument. He has so many options on the table that he can use short of nuclear weapons that uh, it, it's absurd. And then again, when it comes to nuclear weapons, you have to keep in mind, Russia has spelled out the conditions under which it would use nuclear weapons. Either it's in, in retaliation to a nuclear attack on Russia or if the territorial integrity of the country were at stake now what you say in, in comparison neither the united states nor nato has ever spelled out the conditions under which it would uh, they would use nuclear weapons it's always left up in the air and, and they always say well you know we never uh, spell anything out we want to maintain strategic ambiguity so in fact so you know russia has never maintained strategic ambiguity nato says, well you know we might use it and in fact nato is committed to first use. Russia was the one, or the Soviet Union, and and Russia as well, have sought a no-first-use declaration. It's NATO that has rejected no-first-use declaration. So In fact, NATO and the United States are ready to use nuclear weapons against a non-nuclear power and against even a conventional attack. And that was always the case throughout the Cold War that in the event of a conventional war, NATO was ready to use nuclear weapons. So you know, if you look at the history of it, and again, even the United States in its least uh, recent nuclear posture uh, publication, it envisages using nuclear weapons in a, against non-nuclear powers, which is something Russia has never committed itself to. So, you know, this is how they repeat it. And, and then you have this... Um, mentality, again, American conservative, responsible statecraft, and, and all the rest of them, who flap their arms, you know, you know like, like chicken. Uh, it was like, oh, my God, nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons. Oh, ooh, ooh, this is so terrible. You know, what are we going to do to restrain nuclear weapons? This is a really dangerous. You know, they want to sort of bring back the glory days of the 1960s and 80s when there was an opposition to nuclear weapons. Well, If you're really worried about nuclear weapons, then what you should do is advocate a policy that does not cross a nuclear superpower's red lines. Nuclear weapons are not in themselves evil, other than if you say all weapons, all instruments of war, all killing uh, instruments are evil. Nuclear weapons are just simply more uh, lethal than other things. But if nuclear weapons serve to preserve the peace, as they did during uh, the Cold War through nuclear deterrence, then nuclear weapons are not themselves so terrible. What is terrible is when countries start pursuing policies that cross a nuclear superpower's red lines. The United States did that by getting involved in Ukraine even before February the 24th by pouring in arms into Ukraine. Turning Ukraine into this um, aircraft carrier directed at Russia, and then they continue doing that, continue to uh, arm Ukraine, and encouraging Ukraine to try to resolve its problems against uh, with its Russian speakers in its southeast by the use of military means. Something that United States and NATO knew perfectly well would be a red line for Russia. Russia could not allow Ukraine just to conduct an ethnic cleansing campaign against uh, Russian speakers. So that was crossing the red line. And then ever since February the 24th, the United States has been crossing a red line by pouring in all these howitzers and javelins and Haimars and and, um, uh, Stinger missiles and everything else into uh, Ukraine, which are being used to kill Russians. And Now, if you cross red lines, then the chances keep increasing that there will be a full-scale war, and a full-scale war will mean, could, could well mean the use of nuclear weapons. Now, this should be fairly obvious, but there's no point in just flapping your arms, ooh, 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 nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons. The thing to do is to be firm in opposition and say the United States has no business Antagonizing and escalating this conflict in Ukraine because of the danger of full-scale war in nuclear weapons. But they don't say that. Neither the Republic of Responsible Statecraft nor the American Conservative nor anti they kind of stick to this position. Well, yeah, it's good to you know, it was it was right policy to help. Uh, Ukraine fight off the horrible, aggressive, invading uh, Russians. So that that was all well and good, and so they support that. Well, if you support that, then you are supporting crossing Russia's red line. If you're supporting crossing Russia's red line, then you are supporting a policy that could well lead to war and nuclear war. And so, <laughs> so therefore, it's so disingenuous. To go around, you know, flapping your arms and just, you said, oh, we've got to do something about nuclear war. Oh, let's go back and think about what happened to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's another favorite. You know, they keep talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is a totally different situation. But they think that if they keep saying, oh, Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, Kennedy, Dobrinian, Bobby Kennedy, you know, it was all somehow resolved. That doesn't help you. <laughs> There's a very simple policy. Don't. Cross Russia's red lines. Russia is not crossing America's red lines, you, but you're crossing Russia's red lines, and therefore you are heading towards disaster.
0: Yeah, I've um, noticed too. Even in the anti-war and non-interventionist circles, there are some people that are pretty utopian about the issue of nuclear weapons. I've like long said this that that cat's way out of the bag, and there could be cases made that yeah, like there needs to be like restrictions on. Um, these like nuclear arsenals and like any like additions to that and like certain type of like interstate cooperation to make sure that like these things are properly managed but to like pursue these like really hardcore like disarmament programs i think they actually could be co-opted pretty easily because there's two countries that come to mind that are not giving up their nuclear arsenals no matter what like type of context you're talking about. Those are like the U.S. and Israel. Like, let's be real. Like, a lot of these programs of, like, nuclear disarmament that get promoted by in, like, the U.S., they're going to be done in a way that it's, like, it's going to be made to, to be constructed in a manner that makes sure that the U.S. maintains, like, an asymmetric, like, nuclear primacy while the rest of the country becomes, a oh, rest of like, the planet, I meant to say, becomes, like, a geopolitical plaything for the U.S. and its loyal allies like Israel or whatever. But yeah, I've like long said like nuclear weapons, like a, nu- a civilian and military nuclear program is what defines like a real nation, and countries that don't have this are like literal like geopolitical, geoeconomic playthings for great powers to feast on.
1: No, that's, that, that, that's exactly right. And then again, people then misunderstand the issue of arms control. Nuclear arms control didn't abolish nuclear weapons. What all that nuclear arms control did, is they expressed the desire of the nuclear superpowers to pursue a policy of detente. In other words, they, were, they sought to improve relations uh, between uh, each other, and arms control was an expression of this desire to improve relations. They didn't think the result of this you know, making the world any safer because we're reducing this weapon or that weapon that's not what mattered what mattered was that they were sitting down negotiating and signing an agreement and that's what arms control has always been about it's it, it's that they you know that countries instead of going to war against one another they're sitting down and negotiating something signing treaties and then people feel happy because you know in, instead of Look, Staring at each other as they were in the Cuban missile crisis you know they, look they, they, they might go to war against um, uh, each other instead of that they're sitting there negotiating and signing agreements and that is has serves the purpose of relaxing tensions so but people who make a fetish of arms control and become obsessed by this or that they just misunderstand what arms control has always been about it was simply it's the detente that was important, arms control was an expression of detente. That's the tough diplomacy they yammer on about, but yeah,
0: right. they, they don't want to recognize but it. But they
1: make a fetish of this, and then suddenly, oh, arms control, we need arms control, we need arms control, as if somehow that you know, arms control in itself has an, an independent existence. It has no independent existence. Arms control is a part of detente. You can't have arms control without detente. And that's that's what it was. The, the big arms control agreements that were signed from the 1960s and 1970s were part of the détente policy and the great improvement of uh, you know U.S. Soviet relations. And that's how that's when you sign you sign your agreements. But instead of that, the, you know a lot of these uh, foreign policy wonks they just make this fetish of arms control as if in, that in itself is particularly important. It is not. What you need is an improvement of relations. Once relations between uh, the U.S. and Russia uh, improves, then we'll have arms control. But you can't have arms control without the prior improvement of relations. And when you are antagonizing uh, Russia, when you have you know sending in weaponry that is killing Russians, well, you're not going to have arms control. <laughs> I mean, you know, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll go on killing Russians in Ukraine, and we'll go on blowing up bridges, and we'll go on lobbying uh, drones onto ships in the Sevastopol. And we'll, we'll, don't, we'll go on doing that, but let's have arms control. Let, let's sit down and talk about nuclear weapons. But you're not going to have it. You can only talk about nuclear weapons or any other kind of weapons if you've already got an improvement of relations. And that means you've got an improvement of relations on the important things. And Russia has spelled out what was important to it, which was, Expansion of NATO—that's what was important. That you can't have—we're not going to be surrounded by NATO satellites on our borders. And that, that was what was important. But said, "Oh well, no, no, no. Let's just let's just talk about nuclear weapons." And again, you got somebody like, you know, it was it was Ray McGovern? I he mean, was a sensible enough fellow. He um, just uh, uh, obsession about these missiles. Oh yeah, well we, maybe we could work out an agreement about deployment of missiles. Well, that was an issue that had already come up back in uh, December when uh, when Putin had um, issued those two draft agreements, one for the United States and one for NATO, and the Americans kind of you know basically didn't want to uh, have anything to do with that. With one exception, which was missiles, they said, "Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that. We, you know, we, we, we might agree on not uh, deploying uh, missiles in Ukraine." And and Putin and Lavrov both said that that in itself is a peripheral issue for us. The most important issue for us is NATO membership for Ukraine. That's the important one. You know, the issue of missiles, you know, it, is, is a secondary issue. And then, and but still, all these people like McGovern. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we can work out some kind of an agreement on missiles. No, that train has left the station. So that's what it's—it's this it's kind of living in this um, Cold War mentality and making a fetish of things like arms control and nuclear missiles when that's not—it's obvious that that isn't the main issue here.
0: Yeah, it's a, there's a lot of like uh, putting the cart before the horse. And some of these people just don't want to recognize that the US is like foreign policy elites and the decision making that follows their mindset is just like delusional. These people are just ideological fanatics. Uh, they're not even like a proper elite, if you ask me. Now I've uh, been amused by some of your criticism of like libertarians as well. What about libertarians has irked you with regards to what they say about the Russo-Ukrainian conflict?
1: Well, you know, they start off by accepting every part of the narrative <laughs> yeah. of Russia and Ukraine and then think that they're going to arrive at uh, a c- conclusion favorable to the libertarians. So they're, they're essentially being very cutesy, but of course they're being too cute by half. So they say, yeah, yeah, Russia is really evil. Russia did an evil thing invading Ukraine. This was an illegal, an illegal invasion, as if, you know, the war was going to come uh, crashing down because you say it was illegal, illegal. So then they say this, and and then, then they say, oh, after after doing all these monstrous things that Russia did, which uh, they say, ah, but look, you know, Russia's failing. Russia's losing. Again, they pick up on the story. Therefore, we can draw the conclusion that we don't really need all this NATO, and in, or at least in any way, uh, the Europeans need to do more for NATO. They need to really uh, spend more on their own defense. And basically, we Americans, you know, we're giving them a free ride, you know, we're, we're um, um, giving him, you know, they're, they're hooked on welfare. You know, basically it's a welfare check that we're sending to the European. Well, you know, this is an argument that is guaranteed to lose. So they put this forward, this argument, and any neocon, New York Times, editorial writer, anyone can knock these arguments out of the ballpark with ease. First of all, if you already accepted that Russia's action was illegal and immoral, then you know you're you're already you can't really draw the conclusion that there's nothing we can do about it and we shouldn't do anything about it. And then obviously you say, hey, we've got to do something about that. But then if you say that uh, well Russia is losing uh, and Ukraine is winning, which is what all these Cato Institute types are saying, then you know what are the neocons and what's the New York Times and what's Lloyd Austin and everything gonna say in response? Well, they say, yeah, Russia's losing because we did so much for Ukraine. We sent them all these arms. And no thanks to you either, Mr. Cato, Mr. Doug Bandow, Mr. Ted Galen Carpenter and the rest of them. No thanks to you. We did it. We sent all these armaments to uh, Ukraine. And that is why Russia is losing it. Russia is losing because of us, because of NATO, and not because of you. So, <laughs> NATO's conclusion, and what's Bandao going to say to that? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, if he says that this was right to send uh, aid to Ukraine, and that's what they argue, what these libertarians argue, is it was right for the United States and for NATO to do everything that it could for uh, Ukraine, then why why stop here? Why not go all the way to victory? So, I so, uh, thought, so, oh, well, well, we don't really, well, then they think, well, Hey, what's going to be? What's going to be our argument against that? You know, why not just go on pursuing this, uh, you know, this war against Russia using Ukraine? Ah, then they say Putin. Putin might get desperate. Putin might use nuclear weapons. That's it. That's it. That's that's our argument going to be now. So the libertarians have reached the conclusion that well, we don't want to go on uh, supplying all these armaments to Ukraine because Putin might get desperate. He might use nuclear weapons. Well, of course, that, that argument again likely to lose because, and and this is something that people like Michael McFall and others keep saying, they say, I don't think Putin's going to use nuclear weapons because, you know, if he tried to do that, the military would rebel against Putin and the military would actually overthrow Putin. And therefore, it's actually quite desirable for us to continue with this war because it might result in the overthrow of Putin. So, this is the the libertarian argument is guaranteed to lose, and the, it, it, what, you feel that that in the, in the end that's really all they're trying to do. I mean, it's it's like a controlled opposition. You're there. You're, there's a pretense that you're somehow oh I'm offering a critique of uh, U.S. foreign policy. You know, I'm really I'm really you know criticizing what the Biden administration is doing. No, in fact, you're accepting all the premises accept all the assumptions, and then you think that it's going to uh, help you reach the conclusion favorable to you. No, it's going to reach a conclusion favorable to the neocons and to the interventionists, and which is why none of these people, none of the antiwar.com, Cato, responsible state crop, all of them, none of them has made the slightest uh, impact uh, at all because essentially it's kind of irrelevant. I mean, it's like they, you know, they've accepted the premises, well, if you accept the premises, then you know you will lead to the conclusion that we need to continue with the war.
0: That's what I've gathered as well, looking from afar. It seems to me the only reasonable entity that's talked about this kind of stuff that's on like the ostensive like libertarian or right spectrum is like the Ron Paul Institute. And Daniel McAdams, he's solid, not just on the policy but also like on the narrative too he like he really goes into like how like people need to get the narrative right as well because if you don't get the narrative right no matter how well your policy sounds it's just so incoherent and ineffective when you message to people
1: that's right that's 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 right it becomes incoherent and that's why these arguments presented by all of those um cato types Anatole Levin or whatever—they are so unconvincing. I mean, they—they like, you know, they are guaranteed to lose an argument. I mean, you know, if I were a neocon, I, I would just destroy these arguments. They're so uh, ridiculous. Another nice one is the the type of person who then invokes the Constitution, the Constitution. Oh yes, Congress must declare war. That's it. We must go to Congress and have Congress declare war because it is in Article 1 of the Constitution. And so they this, but right from the beginning of, you know, U.S. history, presidents have had a great deal of leeway in waging war. I mean, Congress, yes, Congress is supposed to appropriate funds, but, you know, you know, almost every military adventure in U.S. history has been done by presidents, and Congress has, you know, Allocate the funds as desirable. So this is a a complete dud of thinking. Oh, let's get Congress. And even if you did get Congress, they would probably vote for it. I mean, why why would you think Congress wouldn't vote for it? Uh, But of course, Congress doesn't really want to do it because they're they're generally a very cowardly bunch. For political reasons, they don't want to put their name down on something that might blow up in their faces. But (laughs) the whole idea that you think that somehow the great savior. Of, uh, of, of our country would be if Congress gets a vote on whether we want to go to war with Russia. Yes, let's give it to Congress. I mean, it's a total uh, joke. And then we have the War Powers Act. Let's invoke the War Powers Act. I mean, the War Powers Act has been on the books for 50 years, never been invoked uh, uh, at all. And um, and. You know, it's it's again guaranteed to uh, get you not to get you anywhere because, of course, you know the, the people in Congress they know perfectly well that whichever way the war uh, ultimately goes, they're going to lie about it. They they you know if they basically if it goes south and ends in disaster, they're going to pretend that they were always against it. I mean, like you know, if you remember when Joe Biden in the um, the 2012 uh, presidential campaign when he had that vice presidential debate with um, Paul Ryan he actually said oh yeah yeah i was uh, i was opposed to the iraq war i mean a total lie and uh, because you know anyone with any you know the slightest uh, uh, memory will remember that biden was a fervent advocate for the war uh, in iraq but by 2012 he was able to uh, lie um, about having been um, against it, um, and that's what it is. it's like. Everyone pretended to be against Vietnam. Everyone had been for Vietnam for years. They supported the Vietnam War. Then, when, of course, when it, uh, everything went south, then everyone pretended they were they'd always been against it. That's what Congress does. Uh, so the idea that these are the people who are going to save us—just give it go. Let's go to Congress. Maybe they will. They will vote and say no. No war with uh, Russia. Yeah.
0: Yeah, some of this stuff is so delusional because, like, the U.S. is already like in a post-national, post-constitutional order to begin with. And as you mentioned before, it's a it's a monolithic, uni-party. Even if you go through this whole formal procedure, like the vote will be like a, a super majority in favor of prosecuting this stupid conflict, which is not a question of procedure. It's a question of like the composition of this ruling class that we have, which is parasitic and also consumed by an ideological fixation against russia so yeah you're not fixing it by sticking to the constitution you're fixing it by like undermining the ngo industrial complex that pushes these policies and like the media and then the politicians and all of that but like uh thinking that just by like following the constitution it's going to be like the, the silver bullet is like the height of naivete and it's like something to be expected that come from like dc right-wing circles
1: right you know like some rand poll you know god i you know can't wait for rand poll to weigh in with uh, you know the constitution you know congress must have the uh, the <laughs> last yeah <laughs> I mean, that's right. <laughs> it never happens and it and it's guaranteed never to happen because congress doesn't want to have uh, the last say in it and they're going to find ways to uh, avoid it and even then it's very dubious really what the Constitution actually says, because, you know, you can read the Constitution in, in all sorts of ways as to who, who really has the say on when it comes to war, you know, Congress or the president. So it's a totally pointless argument. But, you know, as I say, I think it's, it's with, with these people, they're all too clever by heart. You know, they're very, always very cutesy and think that they're going to win the argument by being uh, really cute. Well, they're not. And that's why they, they haven't been. And, um, and, and that's why these people like Buchanan and, and the rest of them who think that, well, if they, they accept all, all of the premises of, uh, of the people who normally they have no time for. I mean, it's like, you, know, you think, Pat Buchanan, who says all this stuff about, oh, Russians are in route, you know, Russians are fleeing, you know, you know, Putin has been defeated, Putin has been humiliated, Putin may not survive. And you, you ask, well, where's Pat Buchanan getting all this from? Well, he's getting it from the New York Times. Well, why is Pat Buchanan accepting a narrative from the New York Times? I mean, he didn't accept it over Iraq. If you believe that the New York Times were lying about Iraq, if you think the New York Times is uh, lying about um, Syria or Libya, then why do you accept think that the New York Times is telling the truth about Russia? But again. He thinks that oh well if he, he you know he can get some argument like well yeah but but Putin in his desperate uh, you know mode that you know because he's trying to save his regime he might use nuclear weapons so we we, we need to we need to tamp it down because we we don't want Putin to uh, let off nuclear weapons that is a, a weak silly ridiculous argument and the extraordinary thing is why the libertarians think that they're going to win an argument by thinking that being getting terrified you know trying to do this fear porn that somehow at any moment Putin's going to release nuclear weapons but that's how they want to do it and that's why i think it's just laughable i mean i you know i I look through these websites these anti-war.com every day and i I just you know find more and more this you know this is just utter nonsense i mean it's just intellectually worthless i mean you mentioned daniel mcadams i think he's good i think doug mcgregor is good but the rest I, I, it's just an embarrassment
0: i also suspect that douglas mcgregor when he is posting on american conservative that there's probably some very liberal editing to some of his work to conform with that magazine's like standards and i wouldn't be shocked also if his drafts were like much more hardcore and they were like <laughs> edited
1: profusely to say the least yeah, I think so, too. I, I think he wrote somewhere, something like this recently about Congress. Cong- you know, I think it was when he was criticizing Petraeus's idea of a coalition of the willing uh, to go war against Russia. And he rightly criticized it. But then he kind of brought up this Congress, you know, Congress should step in. You know, this like, you know, yes, Congress should do this. So anytime, you know, they say should happen, this should be done. Yeah, a lot of things should be done that doesn't mean that they are going to be done or there's any prospect of it's being done. So I kind of agree with you. It, it seemed very strange for McGregor talking about should, should happen. Yeah. He doesn't talk like that. Yeah.
0: I'd even suspect too, I've had like some people and this is um, total speculation. Um, I don't necessarily agree with them. Some people even said with regards to Buchanan, um, if you compare his like writings before to now, there's like a clear trend that he's probably probably has a ghostwriter that's likely like a Gen X or like millennial that's very much like imbibing a lot of this nonsense. But who knows? I mean, he's definitely up there in age too. But yeah, there's like some stuff that I know having written in various outlets, there's a lot of politics behind the scenes about um, what content is accepted. And if it is accepted, it gets tailor made for a specific donor class that is done by regurgitating certain talking points.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I, I mean, I, I don't know Cato Institute very well, but I would imagine that they are very preoccupied with keeping their donors happy. And, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, all yes, band, I can that confirm Bandau that. And Ted Galen Carpenter are very much thinking hey, we've got our corporate donors. And, you know, we, we don't want to stray too far from any uh, from the sort of the mainstream narrative. I mean, I think it's, you know, this money raising uh, operation. I think Responsible State Drop, which is published by Quincy, I mean, they have to think that okay, well, they've got Soros bankrolling them. They've got Koch bankrolling them. So, you know, they, they, they know the, um, the, the sort of limited parameters with which they operate. Constant whacking of Trump. You know, Trump isn't president. He hasn't been president for years. And it's still, we still have to, you know, bash Trump as if, you know, sometimes, well, if, as long as we can blame it all on Trump, you know, you know, we're safe. Oh, yeah. Um, I
0: can confirm that. I used to uh, work in the DC space and the NGO sector, when you look at the most prominent NGOs, irrespective if they're like a based right wing libertarian, whatever, or institution, they operate under very similar incentive structures where big donors control the shots. And if any type of content that goes way outside the box of like of acceptable opinion gets published, that stuff could eat could get vetoed by a donor or, the donor will pressure to like modify that stuff significantly. There's so much internal politics there, and it's a really corrupt culture. That's why the RPI, it's not based in DC, and it's like um, it's very detached from that stuff. So that's why it has like legitimately honest work and dissident content. But don't expect any of that stuff to ever emanate from like organizations like Cato
1: or Responsible Statecraft. Yeah, no, I I, I think I think that's right, and I, I, I suspect a lot of that goes on anti-war.com as well. I mean, it, they they often publish that utter twaddle, which just simply it seems to be a kind of agglomeration of um, CIA talking points or interventionist talking points. Yet, for some reason, they put, post it there. And then I think, you know, there must be some business of, you know, I mean, they're always fundraising. I mean, that's what they do. They spend fundraising. And when they fundraise, they uh, they pretend that they're really bold and cutting edge. You know, the, we, we need antiwar.com because without antiwar.com, you know, the war party would drag us into war. You know, we at antiwar.com are all that separates the world from nuclear holocaust. You know, we're, we're preventing America from going to war. Utter, utter nonsense. So they, they, they don't publish anything you know, remotely that's uh, you know, challenging. U.S. Uh, prevailing wisdom, but that's how they generate money. And unfortunately, the sort of the silly rubes who think, "Oh, well, anti-war.com, you know, that's really challenging the war party. That's really, you know, it's that's really hitting it the man uh, where it hurts." I mean, I think they've they've been fooled into just coughing over their money for an outfit that really doesn't do much challenging. Yeah,
0: that's how a lot of the cookie crumbles today in American politics. There's a lot of false opposition entities out there and there's not much in the way of real dissident thought or like institutions that can make these establishment organs organs sweat. I think this is a good place to put a bookmark in this conversation, George. And thank you again for coming on. Where can my listeners keep up with your latest work?
1: um, You can see me on um, Twitter under my name, George Samueli. I have a Substack, also George Samueli. And of course, there is The Gaggle. So we have, you know, The Gaggle, which um, we have uh, uh, daily podcasts uh, with my partner, Peter Lavelle, And um, and then I also have a a YouTube page uh, where I post um, uh, videos of uh, kind of monologues uh, from me, quite short monologues, but, you know, short but pithy, I hope. So uh, again, you just look it up on YouTube. Fantastic stuff.
0: I suggest all my listeners follow Georgia's work because you will boost your geopolitical IQ significantly in doing so. And again, thank you to my listeners for taking the time out of your busy schedule to tune in to El Nino Speaks. And with that, El Nino has spoken.